0: host Dmitri Filippovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich and joining me is my good buddy David Castillo. David, what's going on, man?
1: Well, um, <laughs> hey, we we're gonna talk about a lot of positive things. Uh Dallas Stars versus Vegas Golden Knights after a uh a sort of a very harmless uh, game three so I, I'm just looking forward to to <laughs> talking about it
0: Dmitry. Yeah very uneventful nothing happened in the game it was just your typical run of the mill playoff hockey game no it was a uh, it was a dumpster fire um to put it lightly and we're going to uh jump into it talk about everything i think talk about the series as a whole not necessarily just focusing on game three although game three kind of brought up some of the uh the overarching issues that dallas has experienced in this series but we can kind of loop it all together and talk about the first three games of this matchup and why dallas is in an oh three hole and why vegas is up three nothing i'm I'm going to start on on the most somber of notes, David. I'm going to give you a summary that I have written down here of everything that happened in the first period last night. Okay. 71 seconds in, Vegas scores to go up one nothing. Less than two minutes into the game, Jamie Benn absolutely loses his mind, takes an egregious penalty. We're going to talk more about that later. That puts the team down a man for five minutes and gets him kicked out of the game. Seven minutes and 10 seconds into the game, Vegas is already up 3-0. That gets Jake Ottinger pulled from the game some point later in the first period Evgeny Dodonov runs into Rupe Hintz gets hurt doesn't return to the game and seems like he's doubtful for game four later on in the period he didn't wind up getting hurt but in just the string of cursed events Rupe Hintz trips over a stick that's just sitting in the neutral zone and falls and loses possession of the puck and then the stars hit the post or crossbar twice in that period come out of it down three 0 don't wind up scoring at all the rest of the game. Am I missing anything from what was possibly the worst first period, given the circumstances that a team could play, uh, which was what Dallas incurred?
1: No, I mean, it's it's uh, sort of in my recap for D Magazine, I kind of compared it to Michael Douglas and falling down. It really was just, it kind of felt like a psychotic breakdown, just, I mean, in in so many different ways, which may maybe a little sort of insensitive comparison. So I, I don't want to go there per se, but it just... Anything—it was just the Murphy's law of errors. Like anything bad that could happen, happened.
0: Yeah, if you believe in like negative momentum or like snowballing effect, this was a, a good reinforcement of that theory because it felt like it just kept going from bad to worse through the first twenty minutes, and then not that the rest of the game was much better, but it felt like after that, um, you know, the game was essentially over. And I think the shame of it for me, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that obviously went wrong, but the shame for me, just personally, is. You know, just because of how sort of summarily the Stars fell apart as a team in this game and just how one-sided it was at the start, I, I was actually very interested coming into it to see what adjustments Pete DeBoer would make and what adjustments the Stars as a team would make in this chess match because it felt like you know they got their legs under them a little bit in game two. They certainly played a much better defensive game for the first fifty or so minutes of that game, and then now heading home with the benefit of last change, being able to potentially shake free from some of these matchups that Vegas had been prioritizing. I was very curious to see what Dallas would do, whether that would make a difference, and whether this series would kind of turn around and and they'd be able to deliver a counter punch. And instead it just essentially immediately devolved into quite literally garbage time with garbage being on the ice in the second period. But just, you know, there's, there's nothing you can even really statistically take away uh, in terms of takeaways from this game, because, you know, you look at the money pucks, deserve a meter, deserve to win a meter, or like the, you know, the five on five stats or, or the shot share or anything from this game. It, it really doesn't matter it it paints an entirely different picture of what happened Vegas was clearly just very content nursing a three nothing and then four nothing lead and and Dallas was just peppering them with very harmless shots from the outside and so it makes you at the end of the day you look at the numbers and you're like oh well you know Dallas put up a a bit of a fight there they at least created some opportunities but in reality when you watched it in real time you realize that that really wasn't the case and so it's it's almost a throwaway and that's such a shame because not only they go three down in the series, but it just, it, it, it was the biggest game of their year and it ultimately it's like, it didn't really even happen. I, you know, it's, it really kind of emphasizes that
1: I think where sort of the regular season is, is figuring out sort of the climate of these teams, the playoffs are all about kind of figuring out sort of the weather, right. Of these teams. And so these kind of moments have really, uh, you know, Dallas has kind of really lost these moments. They, they've they lost, you know, the quote unquote weather. Um, because I mean, you, it, it wasn't like Ben's going to get some warranted, deserved criticism for what he did. Um, but it shouldn't be lost on Dallas that they've unraveled in different ways before Ben made one of the dumbest decisions in this franchise's history. Like game one, you know, getting absolutely dumpstered in the third period for trying to sit on their lead. And it was Miro Heiskinen getting beat by Keegan Colasar of all people um, on, you know, one of those late goals game Two, Ryan Sutter's turnover, um, not to mention his unprofessional response afterward. Right. Yep. And then, you know, I, I don't know if there's a, a good word for anti-effort, but that was game three. So they're like, I agree with you that I think Dallas is sort of the, the series maybe been competitive, but not close, but there are things that have been building up, um, I, I think kind of throughout throughout these games and, and Dallas is just keeps losing those moments. And so now they're losing the series.
0: Yeah. And that is what defines playoff series, especially this time of year. But, you know, it does feel like games one and two both went into overtime. So they really were coin flips in that sense, but it does feel like even before game three, a lot of this series was being played kind of on Vegas's preferred terms or, or, or how they would be comfortable playing. And so, you know, we can talk a bit about goaltending here because I, I think everyone's going to come back down to that, right. The disparity between Aiden Hill's numbers compared to Jake Ottinger's are night and day, but while Aiden Hill has certainly been terrific, and I mean, he's got, what, a 949 save percentage in this series. He's given up just five goals in three games, including a game three shutout. Um, And since taking over from Laurent Brassois when he got hurt in, early in the round two matchup against the Oilers, he's got a 955 save percentage in his eight games at 515. Like, he's been very good and done everything they need from him. But then you look at that 34 save shutout and the actual sort of details of it or what he had to face or what he was exposed to. And that really highlights this main theme of this series for me. And it is what Vegas has done defensively to Dallas, because heading in, I was very curious to see, all right, well, Dallas has been scoring a ton of goals off the rush. They have so many different unique ways now with their improved depth to beat you offensively, to carve you up in different ways. And, and last time I had you on, we were talking about that specifically about sort of this unique offensive style they have and how it was working against Seattle. And in this series, Vegas has essentially taken most of that away. And I think the credit is deserving fully to them rather than focusing on what sort of Dallas hasn't done or how they've unraveled or bad decisions they've made as a team. It really does feel like Vegas has kind of pushed them into this corner and has forced some of those decisions upon them.
1: No, absolutely. And I think one of the, and hopefully I'm not getting ahead of myself, but I think for Vegas... I think one of the bigger sort of stories is, is their center depth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before the series, I, I kind of wrote on my substack how I was actually kind of afraid of the Jack Eichel versus Heiskin matchup because Eichel is one of only two players I've ever seen shake Heiskin relatively consistently, him and McKinnon. And part of it's Eichel's like absurdly long stick, which is kind of part of it because it kind of naturally negates one of Miro's go-to defensive moves, mm-hmm. which is that sweep and poke check. But you know, if there's such a thing as like subtle speed, Eichel has it. He's such an elite puck protector, it's easy for him to kind of flip that switch and you know, initiate that first step to kind of shake the defender. And you actually saw that in game one, which I'm surprised nobody jiffed, where Eichel literally like that suited him. Like I couldn't believe it. And yeah, he kind of he put him um, in the spin cycle, right? And, and shook him, shook him, yeah. Himself, yeah. Yeah. And, and which is crazy because it's a matchup that for the most part, you know, Miro has hadn't had to, uh, he hasn't had to deal with, but I, I think what's really been haunting Dallas is actually William Carlson. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the Ford who's played high skin the most out shooting him 13 to four to the first, uh, you know, three games, the Dallas Ford, who's seen the most, who he's seen the most is Rupert Hintz who he's out shooting nine to six and it's his back check-in that kind of seems to spoil every middle of the ice attack that the top line tries. And even though someone like Carlson is not as fast as Hints, he has enough loose puck speed to kind of more or less hang with him. And and there's another guy that I want to talk about, and maybe we'll just kind of highlight him later. But that's Nicholas Waugh, mm-hmm. um, who I think really needs um, a sort of think piece to be written on him, written about it, because he deserves to be mentioned the same breath as Carlson say from like you know four years ago, and Stevenson, you know, within these last two years.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, long time listeners of the show know I did a big thing on Nick Wah last year where I was like, man, I I certainly hope that some enterprising team takes advantage of the situation and steals him for a second round pick with an offer sheet because Vegas just simply cannot match and he needs to be playing up a lineup and. No one did so, and Vegas was able to retain him at a discount and bump him up uh, at some point in the second series, in second round when Nick Am- or uh, when Michael Amadio got hurt, and yeah, he's gelled perfectly with that with that combination. And, and you're totally right about Carlson, right? He kind of feels like a a boogeyman in a way defensively, and, and and he allowed the you know he allowed Vegas to dictate the terms against the Oilers as well, because by the end of that series, by Game Six. Jay Woodcroft and the Oilers were clearly so concerned about the matchup of Carlson being out there when Connor McDavid was out there and what he was able to do defensively to kind of neutralize him and prevent them from scoring that they were they were going above and beyond and jumping through all these hoops to make sure that McDavid was off the ice whenever he was out there and then trying to sneak him on when Carlson would take a break. And that totally just threw them out of a rhythm and and really changed all of their plans and altered them. And that is such a compliment to what carlson has done and how he's established himself defensively and it feels like that's sort of happening again here it it almost seems bizarre to say right when you have the firepower of a top line like dallas does but then just because of this unique defensive impact that he's able to have it really does make you sort of reconsider your matchups or your usage and deployment and and what you're trying to accomplish and 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 that's, that's that's an amazing luxury that the Bruce Cassidy has. That needs to be said when we talk about this team's sort of defensive structure and, and their defensive numbers and what they've done on that end of the ice this entire postseason. And, you know, just to kind of add to that, I think Carlson
1: kind of like, you know, just well, maybe getting back to Nicholas Waugh for a second. Like, I think he's a good example of how elite soft skills can elevate a player and thus their line. This is something that Dallas doesn't really have. Like they... They have players that can produce, they have talented players below the top line, but that's very different than, um, you know, a player that kind of fits in with the interlinking skills of their line mates. Like, for example, Wah is not the best shooter or the best passer, but he's literally one of the best, uh, one of the game's best chance creators off the cycle for Corey Schneider's data. Hmm. And, and that's kind of what Vegas is doing with, the, with these matchups, which is they're forcing Dallas to use the wall, where they just constantly have superior position which I think is also kind of owed to Dallas's lack of foot speed on the blue line, which again is his zoned topic. But um, one of the things that I do want to kind of bring up, which is maybe sort of too much kind of theory crafting and sort of like hockey philosophy. But um, I think something we also saw with Seattle and some of are seeing with Vegas is the kind of ripple effect that I think strong depth can have on its best players. Uh, Michael Blake McCurdy kind of, he did some preliminary research on quote-unquote off-ice impact. The idea being that, Well, territory is not always won or lost on a single shift. So what he did was find evidence for players creating residual offense and defense. Excuse me. And I think sort of Vegas has been a really good case study in how depth can give teams the offensive and defensive zone starts that they want for their best players. Like every one of Vegas's top line is starting over 70% of their shifts, not on the fly in the offensive zone. Meanwhile, Dallas' top line, you know, ranges between 58 to 63% because, mm-hmm. well, I mean, they're just they're getting punished like from line one to four.
0: They are. Oh man, there's so much time packing with the forwards. Can we put a pin in it for a second and, and just finish up on on the goaltending and kind of the Vegas' defensive play uh before we move on to that? Because I I think that's warranting of its own own section in this conversation. Um for the series, I've got Vegas in terms of rush goals and and heading into this, this was a, a matchup that I was really curious to see how it would play out. Right. Because through the first two rounds, I believe Dallas led the entire postseason with 15 goals created off of the rush and Vegas, while they didn't score that many was getting the much better end of it against Edmonton in round two, and certainly in round one against Winnipeg. And so I was very curious to see who would be able to sort of win that matchup, who would be able to dominate in the neutral zone. And so far, through these first three games, rush goals in the series are four to one for Vegas. And what's interesting is I'm not sure if this came across on the, uh, on the American feed, but on the Canadian one here during game one, I forget if it was the first or second intermission, but Alex Petrangelo was being interviewed. And generally these player interviews at intermissions are such throwaways, right? It's just like a cliche fest and and you're not actually going to learn anything. And then it's like, all right, I probably could have used those 90 seconds uh, more wisely. It didn't really learn anything there in this case though. He was sort of asked about uh what the what they were focusing on or kind of how they wanted to play in this series, and and he went into this little dialogue about how he 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 noted that like the big thing for them was maintaining the gaps off the rush, and he was like, listen, we need to make them dump it in because they have a bunch of really crafty guys who can make plays off the rush. I mean, you've seen that this postseason, and so for us to be effective, we need to force them to put the puck into the zone and then chase after the game. And that really feels like that's exactly what they've done here. Through the first two games, according to Corey Schneider's tracking, zone entries are 162 to 125 for Vegas. Chances off of those entries are 20 to 9 for Vegas. And rush shots are 30 to 60. Now, that doesn't include game three. I'm sure that'll kind of look more favorably upon Dallas once you include those numbers because they were... Kind of dictating the pace a bit more with that deficit in mind. So I uh, just throw in those numbers out. But through the first two games, even though the games were close in the scoreboard, that's what I mean when I say that Vegas was really controlling the matchup that I thought the, was the key to this series. And so it really does kind of come back to that, in my opinion, in terms of trying to figure out where this has gone wrong for Dallas. No, that that's that's. I mean, I, I almost like have nothing to
1: add, but I will add anyways, because this is a podcast and two people are having a dialogue. <laughs> but um, I, I think the sort of one of the things I've, I've always kind of kind of gone back to with Dallas is something I kind of said on the last podcast where, you know, the stars are kind of this case study in sort of design versus operational efficiency in modest conflict where I, I do like Dallas is, yes, like an offensively potent uh, rush team at their best but it primarily kind of stems from their top line able to do all that damage on the rush um, the depth can do that you know especially with the inclusion of Dodonov and Domi you know they have a little bit more um, transition ability because of those two um, but I think sort of from from what I've kind of seen I think part of the issue and part of what Vegas has done so well especially in the defensive zone which is that They shut down the middle of the ice. They shut down Dallas's speed, which is one thing. But then when you look at where Dallas has traditionally punished teams on the cycle, their plan B has been behind the net. And Vegas, um, you know, with their kind of zone coverage, has done a really good job of not pursuing Dallas's forwards. Like they try to create something behind the net. doesn't matter. We're just going to, you know, you do whatever you want. We're just going to make sure that no pass gets through the crease or back to the point. And that's something else that has punished Dallas, and they just haven't adjusted.
0: Well, here, the Spore Logic has the inner slot shots for Dallas. Game one, they had seven of them. Game two, they had four. In game three, they had two of them, and they were both by Radik Faxa in the third period, <laughs> who is probably their least likely forward to actually turn those shots into gold. And I think that also highlights a big issue for them in this series where Vegas, because of that compact, uh, structure in the defensive zone that you mentioned, where they keep everything to the outside and are very comfortable with it. I actually thought that heading into this series, Dallas might be able to leverage that to their advantage a little bit because they are com- they are happy to oblige in taking those point shots and getting guys in front of the net and having those layered screens and tips. But that that hasn't really worked out that way in this series, and instead they really just have been settling for very inefficient, low percentage, percentage uh, perimeter shots, and so. Yeah, I mean, the combination of that, uh how Vegas has dominated the neutral zone in both directions, both defensively and offensively are the stories of the series for me and 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 to kind of put a bow on this. You know, Aiden Hill has that 34 save shutout in game 3. I would argue that's about as easy a 34 save shutout as you're going to see. I think SL Ndel led the Stars in shots on goal. Uh out of those 34, I think he had 5 and I don't know if you'd agree or disagree with it, but it feels like the toughest shot that Aiden Hill faced was one that didn't even technically count because it was like that one where where the puck just popped into the slot on a delayed penalty and Joel Hanley just ripped it and Aiden Hill made a blocker save, I believe, but it wasn't even going to count because the whistle had been blown dead and, and a penalty was coming. And so it really just, they got the 34 shots, they dominated the possession in that game, but in reality, it was a microcosm of everything that's happened in the series where it was all very weak stuff from the outside that Vegas will just live with all day yeah and that's that's
1: I think you I think again like kind of and you saw like a little bit of this a little bit of this with Seattle where the the sort of Seattle and Vegas's depth um have these like they they have players who can play to a style whereas Dallas doesn't really, they don't have, like, you know, for example, you look at beyond their top line, you know, they don't have a forward line that can really, you know, sort of either like create off the cycle or create specifically off the rush. You know, there's not like a ton of speed, like broadly speaking on Dallas's end, you know, beyond someone like Hintz and, you know, to a lesser extent, Johnston, who is not a fast skater, but, but has really good loose putt speed and he's very agile. And, and sort of, and then, you know, with the other players, I think that was kind of my issue and why i wanted dallas to get a defenseman and i realized that's another topic why i wanted yes. Dallas to get a defenseman because their issue at their worst again still a very good team that's what makes this series kind of so disappointing um but their biggest issue was having three zone players a defenseman to initiate the attack and the Fords they brought in, like Domi and Dodonov, who were excellent. I'm not going to try to – this is not revisionist history and like, oh, well, actually, Domi and Dodonov weren't good. No, they were They were very good additions. But they didn't fix what was truly ailing Dallas. And you're seeing just kind of the worst of it now with, with the sort of blue line that been left, which is you lost Klingberg, and instead of replacing him with somebody, the guy that you did bring in to replace elements of his game is a healthy scratch, Niels Lundqvist. You up, you up jump Ryan Sutter and now S. Lindell is playing with a rotating door of Yanni Hockenpah and Colin Miller. That's not going to cut it. Like it's just not.
0: Yeah, it. I know. And that's why it's very uh, like a delicate balance where on the one hand, I I want to criticize the players, but on the other hand, I don't know what the alternatives are necessarily. Right. Like, I, I think it's very fair to say that at 38 years old, Ryan Sutter should not be Playing as much as he is right now, especially in such sort of high leverage premium minutes. He's played 65 on five minutes in these first three games, 70 all situations minutes. Like that, that is not a recipe for success. But then you look at it and it's like what the alternatives are. And beyond switching guys like Hockenpah and, and Hanley and Miller in and out of the lineup, which which the board has done uh, throughout this postseason so far, there haven't really been too many buttons to push in that regard. You could argue that. Maybe, you know, they, they should have given Niels Lundquist a longer look earlier and, and and positioned him to be a factor in these in this postseason. That's sort of a moot point now because they didn't. And 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 really I think a lot of this traces back to the deadline, as you're saying, while while Dadonov and Domi have been wonderful for them in this postseason and have made a huge difference in getting into this point, they didn't really address the biggest issues. And now they're left with this blue line group, which doesn't really have a lot of answers to whatever questions are posed to them even a guy like thomas harley who you and i both love and we raved about the last time we chatted during the seattle series has struggled to my eye in this series and game two in particular it was a bit of a tough go for him uh in handling the puck and and that foot speed that you mentioned there has been exposed a little bit not just in terms of defending vegas's puck carrying speed but in terms of going back and retrieving the puck and then making a play with it where Early on, it felt like Vegas was doing a great job on the forecheck of going in and punishing them physically. And then now as the series has progressed, I think you've seen some of the remnants of that where some of these stars blue liners are hearing the footsteps a little bit and kind of forcing and making mistakes as a result of it earlier than they need to. I think that was a great example of why Suter made that inexplicable decision to turn the puck over in game two harley's done that a few times himself uh you saw in the first opening goal in game three off that little kind of forecheck and then cycle that led to marshall's goal it was a bunch of miscommunication kind of guys just sort of sloppily chasing the puck and not knowing where to go and so all of it has manifested in in this and i think that i'm not sure what the answer is right I, i don't really i'm beyond I guess just not playing Ryan Suter as much. Okay, well, what what is the alternative? I'm not entirely sure what the answer to that question is.
1: You know, it's it's. I would honestly say it's. I, I think for as much as we kind of talk about Suter playing too many minutes, or you know, second power play unit, which just drives me insane, which I agree with. I I still think Dallas's biggest problem, and this is not gonna start fans might get angry about this, but I I think it's really the second pair. It's Dell, with Yanni Hawkenpaw and, and sort of Colin Miller. In fact, they rank uh, 53rd in even strength plus minus at minus three out of 56 playoff pairs. And so I look at the final four and their blue lines. And when Vegas is not playing Petrangelo, Theodore is the next man up. Carolina, Slavin, followed by Pesci. For Florida, Ekblad followed by the quietly elite Gustav Forsling. And then for Dallas, it's Heiskin, followed by S. Lindell. And I think it highlights how critical it is for defensemen to be three zone players. Lindell is a one zone defender. Like he's, he's good in the defensive zone with his positioning and that's it. I mean, he doesn't have the speed to skate it out. He doesn't have the pass to facilitate the transition or the puck strength for that matter. And that's one thing that I kind of highlighted on Twitter, which is that, you know, in game two, like, yes, Sutter's turnover was just awful. And I saw people make an excuse. Well, he expected Miro to be there. no, like Miro was right next to him when he made that awful pass. There are no yep. excuses. He panicked and he just made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. But in game two, it was Lindell's super weak dump out that led to a turnover, which then led to the zone entry that ended their night. And whereas like Sutter is probably not going to make that pass again, as Lindell always makes that play. He always dumps the puck out. And this is a guy that's more or less blocking Harley. Um, from being a potential, you know, top four on the left hand side, so that mushy middle. I mean, this is a guy that gets paid six million a year, or close to six million a year. So I think that mushy middle is killing them. Just the fact that they don't have a second pair. I mean, you can't think of. I can't even think of a blue line in the entire playoffs this year that has a second pair like that.
0: No, you can. And, and the issue is, you know, we're we're going to talk a lot more about Ico here after we take a break. But while we're on on Lindell. I think Bruce Cassidy deserves a lot of credit for installing this defensive system and 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 having Vegas play the way they have off the puck. Another thing he's done masterfully in this postseason, he did it against the Oilers to Jay Woodcroft. He's doing it again here to Peterborough. Is he is targeting specific matchups and he's getting them time and time again, and that's setting up his top players to succeed. It is a bit of a coaching chess match, and he's clearly winning it. And what I what I say by that is on the one hand, he's getting that Petrangelo Martinez pairing with William Carlson out for you know, over 50% of uh, Dallas's top line minutes at 5-on-5, which is also then in turn allowing him to free up Jack Eichel for offensive usage. And you look at Eichel's five most common opponents at 5-on-5 in this series, they're and Dell at 20 minutes, which is significantly more than anyone else. Mason Marchmont, Joel Hanley, Wyatt Johnston, and Thomas Harley. And, and that is, I know that you know, that came a lot in the first two games where they had the benefit of last change in home ice. But if you were to script this series and be like, all right, what's a recipe for success for for Vegas? It would be, well, we're going to get our most dangerous offensive player out against that group of players. And that's exactly what they've been able to do. And SLN Del's sort of one-dimensional nature has really been a big problem in that matchup. While he's good positionally, defensively, and kind of soaking up, uh, you know, shot blocks and and, and all that good stuff, after what happens after that has been a massive problem because it just sort of restarted the cycle over and over again. Because they haven't actually been able to turn any of those ends of possessions into positive plays moving out of the zone. It feels like whenever they do get the puck. Eichel and his group kind of just forced them into a turnover in the neutral zone, quickly regroup, and it's back at it again. And I think that has been highlighted here. And that's a big reason why, you know, Vegas has been as successful as they have and why Dallas has been struggling in that matchup.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's almost like tough to watch sometimes because you see exactly what this team is capable of um at their best and and certainly what they're capable of when high skin is on the ice but it's just such a 180 and this is not to necessarily like dump on like s lindell in his contract even though yes i i tend to be critical of him because i've always kind of hated that notion of like pay the guy in the other guy's shadow it's basically what happened with lindell's contract right he was paired with john klingberg for so long um, and he was seen as this sort of defensive apparatus, this kind of stabilizing force, even though he never drove play. Like he didn't do anything special in all three all three zones. He was just the defensive guy next to Klingberg. And, and so Dallas has been content to kind of live with these players. You know, and that's kind of why Hockenpah was brought in, Colin Miller, et cetera. And, and it's really kind of, it, it, it again, goes to show you just kind of what we talked about with the Seattle series how much the margins matter like if you settle for you know the floor on a really critical position and you just and you don't do whatever you can <laughs> to to optimize the lineup somebody's going to come along and exploit that and that's exactly what Dallas is experiencing right now which is their defensive you know their blue line which really needed help at the trade deadline goes unaddressed they feel like glindell's reputation is good enough it's not it's never been um just because of how he's been characterized and and to vegas's credit they're just doing exactly what they need to do they're they're sort of they see the kind of <laughs> um they see exactly how they're going to win and what they're going to do to just constantly gain territory and they're doing it like here's your weak link we're exploiting that
0: yeah it feels like they're uh yeah they've kind of identified the the cracks in the armor and they're just basically pressing down on those and 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 kind of making them uh even bigger than they were previously and maybe um maybe i just underestimated the fact that dallas's first two opponents in minnesota and seattle just didn't really have the, the offensive personnel i guess to do so and so now that they're facing someone with the guys that the vegas has it's become a bigger issue obviously um all right, David, let's uh, let's take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll keep talking about this series and plenty more. You're listening to the Hockeypedio guest streaming on the Sports Night Radio Network. Your number one spot for Flames coverage can be found on Flames Talk with me, Pat Steinberg. Exclusive interviews, trusted insiders, and the latest news. Listen live weekday afternoons at four or stream the Flames Talk podcast on demand. All right, back in the hockey cast with David Castillo. We're talking stars, Golden Knights. Uh, David, let's talk a little bit about Jack Eichel here, because to my eye, he has been decidedly the best player in this series through three games. I know he's got just the two primary assists to show for it so far, but it feels like he's been creating so much in his five-on-five five minutes. Vegas is up to nothing on the scoreboard. High danger chances are eight to three, and I've personally in my tracking got him down for ten shots set up five scoring chances set up and of his own 12 shot attempts eight of them have been scoring chances and it feels like he has been probing and creating every time he's been on the ice he's been effortlessly slicing into the offensive zone with the puck to set the table for his teammates and it really feels like he has been you know from a skater perspective at least the biggest difference maker in the series
1: i'm really happy for i just want to say that as just a hockey fan first and foremost I'm really happy for for Eichel here because I feel like for the longest time, you know, despite his draft status, sort of, he just kind of, I think people just, you know, mostly ignored him or kind of treated him as the guy in the shadow of McDavid and not even the shadow of McDavid, but probably like, you know, players like Miko Rantanen, who also went in that draft, Mitch Marner, Kaprizov and so forth. And I think kind of what you're seeing is now with a good roster and hundred percent health, um what made him and what makes him such a special player which is i think he's a player like of of incredible kind of a combination of like subtlety and physicality Mm. um where sort of you know he he doesn't doesn't always beat guys with with his speed doesn't necessarily need to um that sort of puck protection kind of making him unique and kind of stand out um but um it, it sort of it makes him it makes it look like he's not quote unquote trying um, which is one of the things that always kind of bothers me about sort of talented players that you know coaches criticize um, because well maybe they don't throw enough like checks or hits or block enough shots as if like that's synonymous with effort like well you know maybe like what's going on in their head is their effort you know them trying to figure out things on ice and, and try to anticipate things rather than just kind of always reacting. And and to me, Heichel has just done such a great job of being proactive in how he sees the play, um, being offensively and defensively aware and and just winning one-on-one battles as a result. Yeah. Um, it's 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 the perfect blend of that kind of that talent, but also the physicality, but the creativity, and and it helps that you know, he just he's in some of these, you know, against a blue line that is um, you know can't handle him. <laughs> but, but to be fair, real high got a couple cracks at him and he got absolutely like bodied. And that is something that you don't even see against, you know, like guys like McDavid or McKinnon. Um, and, and so I, I've just been impressed and kind of in awe really.
0: Yeah. His utilize utilization of that speed is really fascinating. Cause it feels like offensively when he has the puck, the game has really slowed down for him. He's like he's he's reached this next level of confidence and com- comfort in what's going on around him. Especially like you watch him on some of these plays uh, on the power play, not the Vegas's power play, has been particularly good in this series or this postseason. But it sort of illustrates that in terms of like his. Uh, Willingness to sort of like circle back rather than forcing something and just slowing the play down and waiting for a passing window to open up so that he can attack as opposed to, you know, just constantly being go, go, go. And then when he doesn't have the puck, I actually think just as impressive has been his work defensively in this series where, you know, he's almost sped himself up where he is constantly putting in the effort to come back and apply back pressure and disrupt. And when we discuss how, um, Vegas has dominated the series in the neutral zone, and maybe the differences in in terms of, you know, the foot speed um between the two teams. I wouldn't necessarily say the Vegas' blue line is all that mobile, but they're able to look a lot more confident in gapping up and stepping up than Dallas's is because of a guy like Eichel, where every single time Dallas is trying to carry the puck up the ice and you've all of a sudden got him. Backtracking, closing the amount of ground they have to cover and and account for. And that's forcing a lot of turnovers, right? And so I just think it's been a masterful three zone effort from him. He's been putting it all together and it's been really fun to watch. And, and, you know, game three was a great example. What was it? It it was on that power play, um, I believe in the second period, where at the end of his shift, even, it looked like Radic Faxa might have, you know, a a partial break or a chance to come down the right wing and, and get a scoring chance off. And he comes back, backtracks, just takes him off the puck, allows Shea Theodore to pick it up, and they're back out of the zone and able to attack once again. And so that was a great sort of encapsulation of what he's been doing this entire postseason, particularly in this series, to make a difference.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the kind of thing that, unfortunately, you sort of aren't seeing on the other end, on right. Dallas' side. But it's I think what also helps, too, is that Eichel sort of kind of getting back to that um, – that sort of, you know, discussion about kind of player clusters and, and, and sort of, you know, ideal line mates, uh, you know, more than chemistry. I feel like chemistry is just such a, uh, you know, is usually kind of a stand in for experience. Right. Um, but instead like Eichel doesn't just have, you know, sort of players that, you know, he has experience with, but, but players that I think really kind of complement what he does in all three zones between, um, you know, Barbashev, you know, just kind of being a, a sort of four check and demon and then,
0: um, of course, H- have I forgotten who Eichel plays? Jonathan Marshall, <laughs> who has done kind of a fantastic yes, yeah. job of getting open once Eichel gets the puck, and 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 <laughs> you saw you saw that perfectly on the first goal in Game Three, right? Where a slight little um, you know hiccup by the Stars defensively, where all of a sudden there's like a miscommunication, they don't know who's covering who. Eichel has the puck, and all of a sudden, instantly Marshall just pops up for like a wide open shot and winds up converting on it that
1: was such a perfect combination of like sort of bad goaltending and like great positioning, right. Where March or so just runs right in front of Ottinger to get open Ottinger just s- still like keeps his eyes on the puck, uh, just completely ignoring it and and sort of March. So just kind of further uh, disconnects from Robertson and Pavelski's coverage. And, and just like that, it's, Right. That was the first goal, which I think also kind of emphasizes that, you know, for as much as, you know, people want to kind of talk about sort of Ben as they should. That that was awful. Um, you know, Dallas did not just start out awfully like to begin with. This, this really was like a collective bad start before, um, you know, before like the nastiness and all that stuff. And and, you know, just kind of getting back to what we we're talking about with Eichel, it's he just it, it really <laughs> makes a difference. You know, again, you know, goes back to the quality of competition versus quality of line mates. Quality of line mates is always going to be so much more important. And and I'm pretty sure like the data is out on this, right? Like sort of for forwards, right? Their performance is more affected by the quality of their forward line mates, followed by, an, followed by the opposing defenseman and then vice versa for defensemen. And Eichel finally has a really good complement of forwards who can finish plays, but can also kind of work with his time and, and you know, as the sort of boxing cliche goes, time and beat speed. And that's what Eichel's line has. They have timing, and it's just been beaten Dallas all over the ice.
0: Well, it's not just Eichel, though. The, I think the, the the issue for Dallas here is, in my opinion, Eichel, Stone, and Carlson have been the three best, or I guess most impactful players or skaters in this series. And each of those three guys is anchoring their own separate combination of forwards right and, and and that is when you talk about depth like that is it we praise dallas's newfound depth uh, after adding Domi to and donov and, and abilities to create in different ways and you know all of a sudden they have this array of offensive options it's not just Rupe Hins attacking off the rush anymore and that has sort of been completely overshadowed or, or entirely evaporated in this series i luke Lindenning's denning's assist in game two represents the only even strength point that any star skater has who isn't playing on either the top line or top pairing for this team. While you look at Vegas and they've gotten multiple even strength goals out of each of its four lines. Eichel and Marjorie So's line has two. Carlson, Smith, and Wah have two. Stone and Stevenson and Howard have two. And then William Carrier and Teddy Bluger have scored two as well. And that that like when we're talking about like oh the differences between these two teams or what's been what's been happening here and what's been transpiring. Well, that's also another important note here. Like. Dallas is nothing's really worked, but in particular, the fact that Vegas is getting so much out of all of these different combinations has been a big point of emphasis as well.
1: Well, I, I think that was also why I was just kind of so afraid about Dallas's deadline, which is that, you know, initially the big the the talking point for Dallas and for fans and and I think even within the organization was, oh, we we need a, you know, we need a right winger for the for the Tyler Sagan line. And and i never understood that because marchman and sagan they weren't great together so the idea that one ford would just come in and magically fix that line was just nonsense and and so what they did is which is something that vegas has not done which is dallas added talent instead of impact um you know or talent instead of chemistry um and and i think that's kind of what that's really been the difference between the ford lines which is that you know Dallas has some really talented players, but there's not a whole but they don't drive play. like yeah, sure Ben scored a lot of points this year, of course a lot of which were on the power play. but when you look at a lot of these sort of you know play driving results, a lot of their possession metrics um it's not like Ben Johnston and uh, especially Delandria to begin the year were you know like Supernova or anything like that um and you know same thing with the Marchmont Sagan, you know, insert player X there, right? Um, you know, there just hasn't been that sort of that play driving ability present in their forward lines below the top line, and and Vegas conversely has that, and and I think sort of this this kind of play driving quality is is what's fueling one team over the other, and also kind of goes to show you what you know the difference between sort of offense and production, um, and you know offense is much more sustainable; it's the stuff of production. Dallas just has guys that can produce but not necessarily the guys that can drive play.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really important differentiation there. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the JB Ben incident? I mean, I just I don't I don't really a lot has been said already. I I agree with everything like it was inexcusable, it was indefensible. It also wasn't his first time doing something like that. Uh obviously on 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 this stage and given the context and circumstances it was, but um I don't know, it just it felt really Like, kind of selfish and reckless. And you would expect more from a player with the experience and, you know, the in theory should be a leader on this team, the captain and all that. And then the lack of accountability after as well. I mean, you put it all together and it was a pretty rough kind of stamp on what was just the most miserable game possible. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, M- miserable is, is definitely, I think, the first
1: and last word that kind of comes to mind. But but I also think that it's sort of, this is, it kind of like starts with hockey culture, like specifically this fetishization of playoff brutality. And, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I love brutality. I used to cover MMA and boxing. I still watch those. I still enjoy them. But the thing about brutality in those sports is that the rules are clear and everyone can sense to that brutality, like hockey players. Yeah, they consent to hidden in physicality, but not to be in hidden the head or cross checked or elbowed. And these things constantly go uncalled. Like we saw this earlier in the year where like Jeff Carr just hit to the head on Cam Carr, which didn't even get in hearing uh, because George Peros was on vacation, I guess. And, you know, we've seen this over and over in the playoffs, like even when the violations are excessive, like when is the punishment ever Proportional to the act. You know, you look at the Petrangelo and nurse expensions being or suspensions being prime examples. So Ben did something fantastically, just you know, fantastically stupid. Um, and I'm not making excuses, but it's just on brand for playoff hockey. And Ben's cross check won't be the last thing um, that we see the last dumb thing that we see as long as the NHL fails to kind of change that
0: culture. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It, it was it was interesting during the game. I forget which intermission it was, but you know the the sports center panel is talking about how oh, oh, you, Jamie Ben's gonna own up to this after this game, right? And then <laughs> he has two and a half hours essentially to think about what he's gonna say. And then as soon as the game ends, just leaves without speaking to media, leaves it to others to handle. And you know what? it might've been the right decision because once he spoke today, his excuse made absolutely no sense. So he had a full day to think about it and still couldn't come up with a reasonable explanation. So maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it was a good thing that he didn't speak after the game, or although I'm I'm morbidly curious to see what he would have said in the heat of the moment.
1: You know, sort of games like that, you can kind of see why um, the sort of like the cliche kind of talking head is born because my goodness, it's so easy to just kind of come up with, a narrative that so makes somewhat logical sense which is something like that happens and you're kind of just like wow th- this team has like no composure and they're led by someone that made an idiotic idiotic decision and then made another idiotic one after that and and you kind of start to you know question like well does this team have what it takes obviously they do obviously this is a talented team you know they're in the western conference finals yep. and and all the pieces seem there for this team, certainly not to make a run this year, because I, I think the writing is on the wall here, um, but certainly like next year and beyond. But you're just how can you think about sort of anything else except just this spectacular failure? And and so, <laughs> yeah, it's I, I don't I'm not like interested in kind of like, you know, sort of um, you're doing the you know playing that Stephen A. Smith role and like, oh, you know what? this team needs to burn it down. This team needs yeah, to restart right. re- rebuilding and and retooling whatever. Um, but it, it is you in the moment you do think, man, well, geez, if you can get rid of Ben's contract, that would be great.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's about what back-to-back games where uh, in game two, you know, Ryan Suter makes the mistake that leads to the loss. And then is has a very interesting post game with the media. Then game three, Jamie Ben does this and, and doesn't even speak to the media. And, and you'd think that, you know, uh, these players in leadership roles are, are held to higher standards and, and and comparing it to the way young players are, are treated in hockey. Right. And and if they did something like this, how that would be talked about as opposed to these guys who I guess have built up cachet over all these years as veterans is uh, interesting to compare and contrast. I don't, you know, I don't know what else to say about this series. I'm kind of curious to see how game four goes. It is back in Dallas. We'll see um, who's available and who's not for the stars, but I don't really know um, how you come back from a game that transpired the way that Game 3 did, right? I think it's one thing to to lose a game. It's another thing to kind of, um, you know, be punked the way that they were or melt down in the fashion they did. And so I'm, I'm sure we'll see some pushback in Game 4, and this is obviously still a very talented team um, that got here for a reason. But I don't know. I, I, what are your thoughts kind of on, on Game 4 and where this series hits now after uh, after what we saw in Game 3?
1: I think I feel like even if they win on Game Four, it's still going to be kind of the the sort of you know proverbial blue ribbon. Like I don't I think mainly because I think through three games you can kind of speak to the broad trends, which is you know William Carlson is doing a great job of shutting down the top line, and even if DeBoer keeps you know the top line away from Carlson's group in game four well you know Cassie's gonna go back to that matchup in game five right. and if somehow they win game five and six well he's gonna have that matchup for game seven I mean it's just it's and even then well what are the guys that don't have to deal with Carlson line doing with the Eichel group you know is Eichel still absolute body in that Eslindell Hawkenpaw slash Miller pair probably like I don't you know there's there, there's nothing about like Eslindell and Hockenpah's performance to make me think they can handle um, Eichel when Heiskinen himself can't, right? I mean, it's so it, – the riding really is on the wall. And I think it's going to be just really interesting to kind of watch Dallas' offseason and see if, like, you know what? Maybe we should get serious. It's tough, though, because all those guys are shined through next year, Hawk and Paw, Miller, and Sutter. Um, and so – Hopefully they, they get serious. I mean, like it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know the series is not officially over, but I mean, it just, you know, functionally it feels like it's over and I, I just feel like you'll probably see a good performance from Dallas and, and, you know, sort of the, you know, kind of local guys can, can sort of gas them up like, oh, you know what? They, they still got something left, you know, but no, they, they don't. It's just, it hasn't been the matchups. I mean, just the most important players for Vegas have been consistent and excellent and the most important players for Dallas have underperformed.
0: They have and Vegas has just had more options and maybe, you know, I'm, I'm going to beating myself up a little bit because I know heading into this series, you were quite high on Vegas and we're sort of concerned about it from Dallas's perspective. I, I, I think I was just a bit too high on Dallas, or maybe not putting enough stock in what Vegas showed us in round two, where you know they demonstrated a clear lack of flaws, a lot of depth, versatility, and ability, most importantly, to leverage their own strengths into punishing the opposition and taking advantage or or neutralizing uh, their own strengths and taking them away from them. And I just didn't really, you know, should have maybe given that a bit more thought or credence heading into this matchup and thinking about how these two teams would shake out head to head against each other. But that's exactly what we've seen through these three games. And I guess the lasting takeaway is this Vegas team is, is very, very good.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, I also like think that something that we tend to kind of, uh, ignore just like broadly speaking, like in just kind of analysis as a whole is, is the concept of styles make, i also think vegas is just a really good stylistic matchup for dallas where they can sort of they can slow the game down but they can also play fast you know they have good depth but they also have game breakers and those are all things that almost kind of um sort of foil dallas in a lot of different ways where you know dallas also has game breakers um but they're all in one line um you know for the most part right you know wyatt johnson exception and and they have depth but that depth can't drive play. Whereas Vegas has depth that can drive play. And of course, they have, you know, sort of, you know, you mentioned like the blue line not being the most mobile, but they can still function with the forward lines that they're given. And that makes a real, you know, a huge difference. Whereas Dallas doesn't have the defensive group that, you know, can really sort of cover for the Ford's defensive mistakes and, you know, vice versa. The Fords like don't have the ability to cover for you know, the blue line's mistakes outside of high And um and and so yeah, it's just in a really disciplined team too. Like not in terms of like penalties or anything like that, but um disciplined in terms play of like game. structure. Yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: Definitely. Um all right, David. Well it was good to chat with you about this and uh looking forward to having you back on the show. I'll let you quickly let the listeners know where they can uh where they can check your writing out um that you've been doing on this series with our uh, friend of the podcast Sean Shapiro. Yes, uh D
1: magazine as always we've been doing uh, the sort of what what we saw, what we felt like, uh, kind of recaps for each playoff game, um, and then I still sort of contribute to. I still write on Puck Salvo's my Substack, and of course, defending Big D every now and then will sort of show my appreciation for them giving me my start
0: awesome buddy well i hope you have more than one game left here in the holster to uh to write about because i've been enjoying your work and coverage of this so far so that continues for at least a bit longer uh we will be back tomorrow with another episode of the hockey pedio cast we didn't talk much about jake Godinger here we talked about the aiden hill we didn't talk about the other end and i wasn't ducking that conversation i was just saving it for tomorrow because i'm having kevin woodley on the show and i think he's going to have a lot of uh wisdom to impart on that so i want to just kind of save that topic for him tomorrow so looking forward to that when we'll be back with that episode of the hockey guest tomorrow here on the sports radio network